Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. My name is Kristen Harcourt, and I'm your host. I'm an executive coach and professional speaker. And for anyone who's new to the show, I created this show because I am super passionate about humanizing the workplace and transforming leaders. And I invite CEOs, strategic HR leaders, and experts who are also passionate about this to have a real meaningful conversation around how we can move the needle and really make impactful change in these areas. And I know you are going to be super excited for today's guest. I'm I'm really, really happy to introduce you to David Teller Klaus. And David is the founder of DTK Coaching. He works with executives, entrepreneurs, and does team coaching as well. He's a speaker, and he's the author of Mindset Mondays with DTK. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks, Kristen. I'm really looking forward to this one. Me too. And I want to start right from the beginning. I highly, highly recommend Mindset Mondays with DTK. And it's going to be a little bit different because I would be saying to you, yes, I read the whole book and there's been so many amazing things. And there has from where I've started. Uh, But the beauty of this book, it's around every week for 52 weeks, really focusing and digging in and really doing some exploration on specific themes. And to me, this is what I really appreciate with this book is that it's not the quick fix. We talk a lot on the show about let's stop the quick fixes. Let's really do the meaningful change, (laughs) which takes time. And so for this, I think it's a beautiful gift that I get to look forward to this self-reflection question every week and go much deeper. Beautiful. And, and, and thank you, because that's exactly what it was designed for. I mean, it's kind of comical because I was, you know, asking a lot of folks who were getting the book to do reviews. And they said, get back, back to me in a year when I finish. I was like, oh, <laughs> but I get it. That's the design of it was I, I'm, I'm guilty of it, too. Um, the, the, the fear is that it becomes shelfware. I mean, how many of my books have I not read? How many did I buy for the title? How many did I buy because I love the author? I was in a sales training 30 years ago and and they said, never ask an executive about any books you see on their bookshelf. Stats are they've probably only read 14% of them. It's like, whoa. Okay, so this was designed to not be shelfware. (laughs) Yes, yes, I love that. And we're gonna eventually get to how you even created this book because I think that's actually a really cool story of where this all came from and you really getting outside of your comfort zone and where that led you to. Um, But I wanna first, um, David, help our audience get to know a little bit more about your journey and and what got you to where you are now doing this powerful work that you're doing with leaders uh, because I know you're a social entrepreneur and you've had other businesses as well before you got into this whole coaching field and doing this work that I know you're super passionate about. So tell us a little bit about your journey and what got you here. Wow. So look, 30 years as, as a serial entrepreneur, it, it included, you know, a lifetime in hospitality, a lifetime in technology, and now, you know, a dozen years in coaching. But I came to coaching because I spent a great deal of the time in my early time as an entrepreneur doing it wrong. Um, I was the guy who overcalibrated towards work. I was the guy who was eating at the desk more often than eating at home. And I built a new house with an office above the garage and I was still eating in my office and not at home. So I, I lived that overcalibration. The reason I describe my work as reintroducing successful entrepreneurs and senior executives to their families is because I'm not the only one who's overcalibrated. I'm not the only one who's so excited about what they're doing that they overcalibrate towards the doing and they forget the being part. 
in my work for the last 12 years is helping those folk who are super driven to bring that same drive and passion to having, and I hate the word, but I use it anyway here, <laughs> having some sense of balance in their world, right? Having that same drive and attention connected to what's important in the world outside of just work. And that rhythm, that, that life rhythm makes for a better leader. Absolutely. I, you know, I'm a firm believer. I talk a lot about integrating the being and the doing. Mm. Um, because sometimes we can think, and I know why people get scared, because I work a lot with those high performers, high achievers that they think, oh, if I'm all in the being, I'm never going to do anything again, because I'm not going to be productive. I'm just going to want to sit there on my meditation mat and just be happy in being. And I explain, no, no, no. <laughs> the, the being is behind the energy. So then the energy comes from a very different place. It's an inspired energy. And it's not from a, um, I've seen this a lot when we think about uh, high achievers underneath some of that high achievement. And I'd love to hear your um, insights here and your experience, David, is a lot of times that going, doing, doing, making work, the priority underneath that there's something that's making them to do it in that way. A feeling this yeah. of I'm not enough. I need to prove myself once I do this, then I'll be enough. And sometimes there's a many, a myriad of reasons where that story is coming from, but it's really about shifting that story as well. Well, it is. And it's the curse of the overachiever, right? Or the high, let's say high achiever <laughs> that I'm going to be the best at meditating ever. <laughs> and it, it's that you're going to slay whatever you do. And so there is that natural belief of, yeah, I could get caught up and do nothing but this. And that's a narrative that's not true, nor is it really truly your own belief. That's something that comes from our acculturation and our educational systems that teach us to, to overvalue achievement and acknowledgement. And it doesn't let us, nor does it drive us to look inward as to what's truly empowering and and rewarding for us and it's not to say that with that connection to self and understanding what your values really are and what truly drives you and what's really important to you that you're not going to achieve it as you said it just means that it comes from a different energy and a more authentic place the it's i i, I so many executives and high performers that live their lives wanting from I want more from my business. I want more from my people. I want more from my community. I want more from this board that I'm on. God, I know I want more from my kids, right? But that's a dangerous, other-driven way of being, and it leads to fat wallets and thin souls. It's, it's not the rewarding path. When a leader wants for the organization, when a leader wants for her people, when a leader wants for her community and for her family, that makes a massive difference in the energy that's driving the achievement. Yeah, absolutely. And actually where you're going there, and I, I, I want to go dig in a little bit more with that in terms of the cascade effect. Mm. Um, tell us a little bit more around what that means, the cascade effects. Well, that's my favorite thing. <laughs> my I, cascade is, is what I call one of my values. It's that serving others who serve others. So it's that, I think it was a Breck shampoo commercial and they'll tell two more and they'll tell two more. It's one thing to coach people and have, have them have the coaching have an impact on their world. 
I mean, on their life. But when that can have an impact on their world, it gives me an impact footprint that's greater than I can do on my own. And what I want for the shift that I want for this world involves a much larger impact footprint than I can have on my own. So my choice is to serve those that serve others so that, that the shift that I want to create in this world happens faster. More of it happens in my lifetime. Yes. Yeah. I, I a hundred percent resonate with that, David. That's one of the reasons why I've been so attracted to working with leaders, because when a leader transforms, there's a ripple effect because all of those other leaders that they're working with. And when you think from an organization perspective, if you have a CEO who was seeing things one way and all of a sudden they've had this amazing transformational shift, imagine what they can create in that organization, co-create as that organism, and then what they can go out and create in the world. Absolutely. And that's actually, Kristen, that's why I got into team coaching in the first place, because after that leader has that transformation, their own culture begins to shift. They look at the team they've been leading and go, Ooh, all of my old stuff is the culture of the team. What can we do over there? It, it becomes a logical, I don't do team coaching for teams where I haven't coached in the leader in the organization. Yeah. And even when I bring in other team coaches, it's again, coaching the leader and the teams they lead because that's where the impact cascade becomes the greatest. Yes. Each of the members of that team is le- is leading other teams. Mm. Yes. Yes. And I think it, it's interesting for our audience, David, to understand a little bit, like you were in a different place and you had a shift, right? You started to, I imagine at some point you started to work with a coach and you went on your self-leadership journey. So if you feel comfortable being a little bit vulnerable, share a, a little bit with us in terms of what that self-leadership journey looked like for you. Yeah. That'll change the energy of this call. Um, <laughs> I remember I said, I've been doing it wrong. You know, I, we, we took an internet strategy and web development company that we started in 1995. We, we had to teach people what the web was so we could sell them a website. Um, so it was fun and it was exciting. And there were no rules. It was that era of irrational exuberance. We had a blast, but there was no path. So I started looking around me to make up what the path was. And I started shooting all over myself. I was you know, my partner and I were building the company we thought we should, and we were hiring the people we thought we should, and we were doing the stuff we thought we should. And, you know, fast forward to our 10th anniversary in business, and I'd been married for a dozen years to a woman I knew since I was 11. We had three kids in private school, the big house, the cars, the blah, blah, blah. But every time I turned the doorknob to my office, my stomach turned. I was disconnected from everything that was important. And I started becoming aware of what I had missed, what I wasn't doing, how much my wife had raised our children for the first 10 years that they were alive. And it got dark, I got really dark. By, it was Hurricane Katrina weekend. We're literally driving back to Atlanta across Highway 10. We're watching the sky behind this darken. And I realized at that point, the only thing I knew for sure, the five best ways to kill myself, I had lost myself completely. Um, and what shifted for me was whew, very timely awareness. Um, I was sort of an Ernest Hemingway fan. 
and his life was Roger, his, the his life of his family has been rather tragic. And what I learned from his life and from the research that's been done in years since then, that children of parents who commit suicide are 50 times more likely to attempt suicide. That's not the legacy I'm here to leave. That's not what I want for my kids. That's not what I want for my family. That's not who I was, but that's where I was headed. And took a lot of therapy and a lot of reconnecting to myself and my family and a lot of coaching. And that began the shift. I understood the power of therapy and the power of coaching. My degree was in psychology. I was headed towards being a therapist when I realized I didn't want to do that. But I knew the power of therapy and I knew the power of coaching. And then Elaine, my wife, is looking to get back into the workforce after a few years. And she ended up getting directed towards coaching. And then I had a ringside seat for a year of watching her grow and her evolve. And I was like, first of all, part of me was like, oh my God, I want some of that, right? That looks like it feels amazing. And then it was like, holy shit, she's gonna outgrow me and it's gonna happen really fast. And so I went for the first weekend of training to become a coach. And I was like, boom, it was all of a sudden there was language and structure and tools and content and context around the approach that I'd had as a consultant anyway. And it was like, I had found home. So a year and a half of leading the company and coaching at the same time, and it was time. I sold to my partner and went full-time coaching, but it was that that turn, that was the, that Hurricane Katrina weekend, it was like August of 2005 was the pivot. Thank you, David, for showing up so vulnerably and, and sharing that story, because I, I think a lot of people in their own way and their own versions can really connect with that. And it's, and I really appreciate you sharing in that way so intimately. And, you know, I think sometimes there's different things that are catalysts in our life that get you to that place where all of a sudden there's two different forks in the road and you can go one way or the other way. And I personally, someone who is so blessed to know you, am so happy that you chose this way and it brought you to, to where you are today. Um, I think that you're doing, you're doing powerful work with the, the humans that you're working with. And so when you start to think about what, what you're noticing and the work that you're doing and I think there's so much opportunity uh, for transformation in workplaces. And when you think about some of the struggles in, in organizations when it comes to leadership and leadership developments, what do you think gets in the way of organizations really investing in leaders in this way and helping them to be the kind of leaders that you and I really envision for organizations to have more of? There's so many things that come up. I mean, the, the first thing that comes up is, is a mindset shift. Shocking. But it's the distinction between boss and leader. And, you know, the boss is attentive to how many people report to him. A leader is aware of how many people she serves mm -hmm. and is responsible for. 
and that's that's a huge difference in the way you approach leadership. Okay, so I also have a fundamental belief that parenting and leadership, the only difference is that one audience is shorter. <laughs> so there's a lot to be learned from that. And we, in, in parenting, our approach has been that we're raising adults, they just happen to be kids now. And that's different way of seeing it. Now, when you lead your team and the people that you're responsible for, seeing them for what they're capable of, not the role they're filling now, you enable them to grow into that. When you, when you focus on relationship, not task, on a team, it makes a massive difference on their willingness and their engagement. It was the latest survey, 83% of employees are disengaged mm -hmm. somewhat too completely. That's awful, <laughs> right? It, 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 it's, some leaders are very attached to telling and not very good at listening. And when you realize that being listened to feels so much like being loved that people can scarcely tell the difference, shut up and start listening. When people feel heard, truly heard and seen, they will go to the ends of the earth for a leader and for the organization. That's the biggest piece. I want to see, I could stand on the rooftop and scream. I want more leaders to listen truly, not wait to respond, but listen to hear. It's interesting. And I think that's, that's connected to some of the, the vulnerability piece and also learning that there's another way, because I think that the telling and going into fix it mode, and it feels like, um, it's all they've ever known. So when they start to have another set of tools in their toolkit and recognize, oh, wow, when I, when I, when I stop, when I slow down, when I help that person feel seen and heard, when I help that person see this is where they are and this is where they think they could only be, but I help them see, oh, no, no, I see you here and help them grow. Because I think the role of a leader is also to challenge them and help them hit those edges and see sometimes parts of themselves that they don't see. But I think what, from my experience, and I, I'd love to hear more your thoughts on this. Um, a lot of times people go into leadership, but they haven't been given the tools in their toolkit. And so. All the time. I, 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 okay. So it's most glaring in sales, right? You have somebody who's been kicking ass in sales yeah. and they get promoted to management and they're given no training in management, let alone leadership. And they fry. Right, because they're no longer doing what they love doing, but they can't micromanage the people below them, but they do anyway. So it's when you put someone in position and don't prepare them for success, you don't create the conditions for success, you're setting them and the folks they're responsible for up for failure. And that is, it is very hard in, in the old style organizations to recover from that and reascend. Those people end up leaving and finding somewhere else that they can be fostered and grown. Right? And that's, that's sad because the brain drain is happening because of a leadership failure. I mean, people don't leave jobs. They leave a boss. Mm -hmm. yes. so that, that, that's a hard one. I mean, there, there are companies now, there are a couple different companies that are trying to build a platform for coaching, some through bots, some through a mass of providers to provide coaching for first two tiers of, of management. 
because they're getting ignored. Yeah. Right here, go lead, but we don't give them what they need. And by the way, that's pervasive to the top. That what we've seen over the last 10 years is coaching or a coach approach has become a core leadership competency. Well, here's the problem. We're not giving those leaders either any training in bringing a coach approach to their leadership, nor are we giving them coaching. So I can't tell you how many times we've seen executives hire an executive coach outside of the footprint of the organization because the organization won't pay for it. Because they're realizing the gap is there. Mm -hmm. So for the coaches on the call, this is the golden age of coaching. Even in the midst of COVID, there are more people that want coaching than there are coaches to deliver it. And my God, the organizations that are investing in coaching, I'm on the bench for the executives at AT&T and they do something that's brilliant. Mm. That when out of their pool, when, when an executive hires one of their coaches, that fee comes out of the coaches P&L. It's not out of that you know, training and development budget. It's not out of HR at all. It's out of their PL. So even though they're not paying, they have an investment in it that they can see. And my God, those are some of the most exquisite people to coach because they're invested in it. But the organization has seen the value and has also seen how to get the coachee with skin in the game. Yes. Yes. I, I love where you're going with that, David. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's really helpful for you to share because I know you and I, we were both trained at CTI and, um, I, I talk to whenever I'm working with clients, the first thing I ask them is when you think of coaching, what do you think coaching is? And it's very interesting to see, I get a very, a vast <laughs> difference in descriptions of, of what coaching is. And, and I think it's helpful for us to have conversations and just to be very transparent and talk a little bit around what coaching is and what coaching isn't. And I'm also conscious around there's different versions of coaching. I know for myself as a coach, sometimes I'm wearing my coaching hat. Sometimes I am wearing my mentoring hat, but I'm very clear right now. I'm showing up as a mentor. I'm, I'm inviting you in. I've, I've got some insight that I think would be really helpful in this moment to share with you when I'm wearing the coaching hat, it looks different. So I'd love for you to share with the audience, David, when you think of coaching, how would you describe coaching? Okay, so we only have three hours on this call. <laughs> no, no, I think it all centers around human performance elevation and, and take out whatever buzz there is associated with any of those individual words. Because I think it's about, you know, folks seeking to become better at being who they be at their core. Now we may access that by getting better at doing what they do. I want to get better at doing what I do. This is leadership presence, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how I access it. But underneath it, it's about getting better at being who you be, who you are at your core. That's the essence of what coaching is. It's just like you want to compete at tennis or cycling, you hire a coach to get you better at doing that. Well, a coach here in this environment is getting you better at being Kristen. That's what a coach essentially is for. Now, uh, uh, Eric Schmidt, CEO and chairman of Google once upon a time, said the, he said, people are really bad at seeing how they show up. Coaches are great at reflecting that back. And most of what a coach does in a coaching capacity is reflecting the system back to itself so that you're making intentional decisions about your impact weight. And so that's a, a, a big component of it. But here's the other thing. I think coaching as a modality, as the, the, 
the, the profession that it is, is in that umbrella of the client does the work, the coach is creating the container and the conditions for the client to do the work. Yes, and. In the real world, pure coaching, you can't be a coach at this level and be a pure coach. Because what the clients are really thirsting for is a mix of not only coach and mentor, but also thinking partner. Mm -hmm. So I described as an acronym I use to describe the benefits of coaching. It's magic, right? M is about helping clients make better decisions, right? The A is for accountability. Everybody wants everybody else to be held accountable. They don't really want themselves to be held accountable. And yet, this is the coaching footprint is a safe place to be held accountable and to begin to hold oneself accountable, right? The G is for growth. And it's a place for personal and professional growth. That's what comes out of coaching. I is, okay, we got to flip negative. I is isolation. You know, senior leadership and entrepreneurship is a super isolated place, right? Your employees don't want to hear it. Your colleagues don't want to hear it. Your partner at home doesn't want to hear it. You don't really have a place to navigate the things that are going on for you. So coaching is a space to cure that isolation and play out the things that you need to feel safe to play out. And the C is about meaningful, lasting change. So that's the core of what coaching provides, particularly for entrepreneurs and senior leaders. Mm. Oh, you described that so beautifully, David. I I really love the way you did that. And I think the magic helps too. Um, Sometimes the acronyms just help too, to be able to like really highlight those different areas. And I I think you've just really, really described it um, very effectively. And so somewhere else I want to take you because um, I know with a lot of the work that you and I uh, do, David, is also acknowledging when we think about the being and and how we're showing up, recognizing what's going on in the world right now, right? So COVID's happening, there's politics happening, there's Black Lives Matter happening, there's a lot happening in the DEI space and belonging. and, And in some way, some beautiful shifts are happening and conversations are happening that weren't happening before. But I, I want to acknowledge there's a, there's a heaviness that comes with this. There's a lot of different emotions that are showing up for people. And so what comes up for you when we think about there can be some divisiveness that is showing up um, a lot. And energetically, we also have a choice around how we show up. And so I, I love to hear your thoughts around that climate that's showing up right now. Yeah, look, let's be real. The pandemic has put uncertainty into everybody's lap. The, the economic upheaval, the cultural spasms that are long overdue. And then there's the election. So this is a great sandbox for two things. One is stop sweeping it under the rug. Right. We no longer have the luxury or the privilege to ignore what happens outside of the organization. It is pervasive. And if you ignore it, it's at your peril. You'll watch the turnover as the economy shifts. So sweeping it under the rug won't fly. Now, how do you bring it in in a safe way? How do you have those conversations? Look, these are critical things that your people are facing and the energy that it's sucking from them on a day-to-day basis is impacting work. So how do you give them safe places to have these conversations? Um, I, I would love to have that with a cadre of, you know, CHROs and really look at what's working and what's not. I think that what's clear what's not working is sweeping it under the rug. The other piece is the mindset around it. 
I have super strong opinions about the election and the candidates. And here's what I noticed, and I got sucked into it too. My conversation, my language, my posts have all been about, I hate the other guy, <laughs> right? It's been what I don't like about the other guy or the other party or these policies or those ideas, but what you put your attention on expands. So when I'm talking about all the crappy things I don't like, ew, that's what I'm surrounded by. Mm -hmm. When you focus on what it is you wanna see created and what you wanna see different and what you believe in and what you want to espouse and support, then that has a greater chance of expanding. Right now, people are rattling on about the other guy that they hate. And it's not, it's not so that they think they can change the other person's mind. I think a lot of it is so that their mind won't get changed. Right. But it's putting them in that nasty energetic cesspool. And I, I know I feel that. And, and I think there's a different way of being. It's what's the dream behind the complaint? Now, there's something positive behind every single complaint. Now, I also firmly believe there are two flavors of motivation, right? There's irritation moving away from something and there's inspiration moving towards it. And on one hand, I wish the world was all about inspiration. <laughs> Sometimes you need the irritation to start moving. These cultural spasms are 400 years of irritation happening. And yet, let's go back to Martin Luther King. His speech was not the I have a plan speech. <laughs> it was not the I hate all of what's going on. And there were plenty of times he spoke to that too. But that speech was masterful because he painted a picture of what he wanted to see created in the world. When little black boys and little black girls can walk hand in hand, when people are judged on the content of their character, not the color of their skin, he painted a picture, a rich, resonant image of what would be the case when the change was created. Plenty of people to do plans. But a leader's primary job is to create that vision that people can identify with and latch onto. And it's not, I wanna create a future where that asshole isn't the leader. It's, this is what I want. And it's when we, words create worlds, as we start crafting our vision in a way that people can understand in a positive light, I'm not saying be Pollyanna and rose-colored glasses, but be declarative of the vision that you wanna create and paint a picture that I can fall in love with and I'll follow you and I'll create the plan. Mm. And so I think what's important now is not just not sweeping it under the rug, speaking to it authentically and also creating, articulating what the dream behind this complaint is, creating where you wanna move and lead people to. We need more of that desperately. Mm. Oh my gosh, a hundred percent. And it feels like the difference there too is, and I like when you're using that example of the irritation and where the energy is coming from. Um, there's a difference between rebelling against and rebelling for. And Absolutely. so when you're rebelling for now, you're like, okay, so now the energy is okay. 
I don't want this. So now I'm going to take the energy around like, well, what do I want? What is that vision? That energy feels. So even as I talk about it right now, I can feel my energy shifting in my body. Right. And so anyone listening, like pay attention, go into your body right now and feel what that's like when you're rebelling against and you're pushing and you're getting angry as opposed to, yeah, there might be a little bit of anger underneath it, but it's like, well, I'm rebelling for, I want to go here. This is the vision. Feel what that's like in your body. Very, very different. It's a different energy that's now way more powerful. And then the beauty when you're coming from this place and you're painting the vision, you have others that want to co-create and be part of it. So now you're rallying the troops, you're bringing people together in that shared vision, which is so much more powerful than what you can ever do on your own. Now you have different ideas and creativity and innovation and all of this stuff happening. It feels like the difference between scarcity thinking and abundant thinking. And brain science is on your side when you shift that direction. Here's why. The human brain does not like to stop something. It doesn't. So let's take the most basic example. Heroin treatment is not stopping heroin use. It's replacing it with methadone because the human brain is craving the chemical. So you replace it with something, in that case, that damages less, something that serves more. And then you can, there are other techniques to get off of the methadone as well. But the point is, when we replace something that doesn't serve with something that serves, it's far more effective than stop doing that. It's what are you going to replace that behavior with? Because behavior replacement works. Mm-hmm. There are people who have the willpower to go cold turkey when they stop whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But the difference is, it's like the difference between losing weight and becoming fit and healthy. You're creating healthy behaviors that replace the things that aren't, that are unhealthy. That works. Absolutely. I mean, this the is all that we talked about with habit change, right? So if you think about, it's always more effective to take what were you previously doing? And then what are you going to replace that with? I'm not having coffee anymore. Okay. During that time, I'm going to have my flavor, favorite flavored tea that I'm still going to have something hot. Oh, I'm not going to go on social media anymore. Okay. Those times where I start to feel that instinct where I want to go into social media, what are going to be my go-tos? Oh, I'm going to go read a book. I'm going to go outside for a walk. So you're starting to replace those with other habits. Absolutely. And so, um, I think that's powerful for everyone that's listening because you can think of that on the the micro and the macro, right? When you think about even for yourself in your day to days, those ones that you can be shifting those habits so much more powerful when you're taking something and putting, replacing it with something else. Um, but I think what you also have alluded to here, David, that I think is incredibly important is reminding organizations, whether it's about what's going out, going on out there and what you want to now create in your workplace, uh, with relation to all of that, I'm just thinking a lot around the diversity, um, equity, inclusion, belonging, and, and not just using lip service, but really painting the picture of what you want to do. And if you are realistically painting the picture, you recognize this doesn't happen overnight. This is a process and a place yeah. that you're going to, and how are you going to show up as you're doing that? But also a reminder for organizations in terms of, we were talking earlier about employee engagement, um, as well, when you help the, 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 the team understand your vision and your purpose and your mission as a company, and you're constantly painting, painting that vision, 
people want to be part of that when they understand, uh, I think Starbucks has always done that so beautifully. Like the baristas like understand it's not just about coffee. It's when I meet with those people, like that's their time, like their Starbucks moment, they're having a connection moment with me and they get that bigger vision and purpose around what Starbucks is, which is not just about coffee. It's about meaningful connection. If I remember correctly, it was the story of when Kennedy was visiting the early stages of the space center and he, he would talk to anybody, right? And everybody. And he ran across a janitor who was mopping up one of the hallways. And he said, so what do you do? What are you doing? And he goes, I'm helping put a man on the moon. And I think that's what being, we don't care viscerally or emotionally about the company making more money or hitting the next quarter over quarter myopic goal. We, we, we just don't care. There's no intrinsic value to us. Being part of something bigger and a vision that we can lean into, that we'll care about. Yeah. People don't care about money. They care about what they can do with the money and the company getting the next look. Look, I, I think you know with the average tenure of a CEO in North America being between three and five years, we have become myopically focused on the wrong thing quarter over quarter performance and can I get done what needs to get done before I have to go to another company that's we, we don't foster long-term thinking in our leaders the way I think we should and will yes yeah it's an opportunity it's a there's it looks so different um, I want to circle back to your book um, and, and I, I tell the audience a little bit around how this book was created because it was a way you were challenging yourself and then eventually got to the book. And I think it's important because the next thing I was going to ask you about is, you know, where you're at now and what you do to constantly challenge yourself and grow. And this is a great example of that. So, so share, share how that all came about. Oh, there were two waves of being super uncomfortable. <laughs> so the first one was all of my business cards have different quotes on the back. There are like 50 different quotes spread across the cards. So I was at a point in back in 2017, I wanted to become more facile with speaking on any topic through the lens of my point of view off the cuff. And so my marketing person, I've been working with this woman since 1996. Jody said, oh, great. Grab one of your cards, flip on Facebook Live and wax poetic for 10, 15 minutes. I was like, no. <laughs> yeah, and we talked about it and it really was a good way for me to get more comfortable so I said yes now Jody had also put together this whole marketing plan which was and then we do a book based on the experience of it and then programs and speaking and blah blah I just heard dot 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 after doing the videos right so that's what I did and I started the videos I started the weekly broadcast on Groundhog Day 2018 I just did the 140th episode yesterday and so this year-long series sort of turned into an ongoing because people started showing up for the broadcast and people started coming back and they started interacting during the live broadcast and commenting and engaging in between and set up a private group for the folks that interact with it. And it's become super active and engaged. And I learned a lot about mindset through my own experience and I learned a ton from the community. So I bundled up that learning together. And I was like, this is great stuff. And, oh, maybe I'll do a book. And I was like, no, I don't want to. Like if I had to get the book out of myself by myself, never would have happened. So I, I leaned 
on another CTI person, Laurie Shires. And Laurie helped get this book out of my head. We pulled together all the content, did a lot of interviewing, and I got super uncomfortable trying to get somebody to pull content out of me. And then waves and waves of editing. But what we came up with was the rewire framework, which is a way to, like the C in magic, make meaningful lasting change. I'm, I'm so hyper aware of cubenesia. You know, when a, when a team or an organization goes offsite and does this magnificent two or three day, everybody's lit up and ready to go. And they go back to the office on Monday, email starts coming in, phones start ringing, they forget everything. It happens all the time. Learning doesn't last if it's not applied. So the rewire framework is at the end of each chapter, there's a section of six prompts that help you take the learning from that chapter out into your life, your world, and apply it and make it real, and even to expand it beyond there. And we put up the rewire framework on the book page before the book was released, and people started downloading it and using it with other areas of learning in their world, not just from the book. So it's actually been neat to get it, see it tested out in the wild and people using it for the other courses or personal development work that they're doing. You can create your own prompts based on the framework and help embed the learning that you're investing time, effort, energy in. Yes. So yeah, this was the book that wasn't gonna be that came about anyway. <laughs> Well, I love and such a great example how you continue continue to challenge yourself, go outside of your comfort zone, getting on doing these Facebook lives. I'm sure it felt very different when you did the first one to when you did the 25th one or the 100th one. Um, and then letting it also, I think there's something to be said around, you know, you just take the action and you let you see what happens and then look what happened. But if you hadn't have taken that action, you wouldn't have created everything that just got created. Oh, yeah. And, and let me tell you, a friend of mine who's a coach, Jason Hartnoff, says he was taught your first videos are going to suck. So get out there and start sucking. Yeah. Watching my first 10 videos. Yeah. Oh, my God. That was super uncomfortable. Um, I could see how like nervous and comparing and second guessing and how wound up I was. But I realized that it was so clear what it, I was wound up around. I wanted the impact to be. And I had no way of knowing what it was or controlling it. I just had to trust and put it out there. So it, it was interesting to, to watch the visible discomfort <laughs> and, and realize the confidence that I gained in doing this, if I had waited to be confident to flip on the camera, it'd still be dark. The, the confidence was the result of taking the action. It was those 20 seconds of courage to flip on the camera in the first place. And a great reminder for everybody is listening. It's those baby steps. It's taught, it always starts with the first step and the next one and the next one. Um, David, perfect. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. We don't want to have any of those gremlins that are telling us that there's no, no space for failure and learning and growing. Um, David, this has been such a, a, a heart filling, soul filling conversation for me. And I always like to... Um, to give my guests an opportunity to leave the audience with a final thought. What comes up for you for a final thought? Oh, wow. So here's, here's what surfaced when you asked me that. You would never walk into a boxing ring with one arm tied behind your back. 
So why would you approach leadership head only or heart only? We are better leaders when we are in touch with our head and our heart in a good, healthy balance. So unlash, unlash that hand from behind your back. Yes. Beautiful metaphor. Um, I'm going to have show notes for everyone to find more, find out more about David, but David, just to want, did you want to just share with the audience where they can find you? Sure. I mean, yes, I'm all over social media, but the easiest way to find stuff about me or the book is to go to mindsetmondayswithdtk.com. It's got, you can download the rewire framework. You can link to buy the book, or you can go to dtkcoaching.com to learn more about me and my coaching. Amazing. Amazing. And I encourage everybody who's listening here to check out my website as well, kristenharcourt.com. For more dialogue there, you'll hear more about David. Um, Please, if you've enjoyed this, I'd love for you to write a review or share the podcast with others. Um, I'm happy to say this podcast has really grown organically over the last year and a half. And it's really been through leaders sharing it with other leaders and other leaders. And yes, there's some social media marketing that I do, but the, the big way that this podcast has really grown is through word of mouth. Um, so I would appreciate others um, sharing it and letting people know, don't keep this, a, don't keep this a, a, a gift that could be right, really creating transformation for them. Thank you so much for being here, David. Thanks for making space for me to join you. It was beautiful. Have a wonderful rest of the day, everyone.